article about the 1985 sit-in at Debing Creek Cultural Camp. Elders Evelyn Dodds and Mona Parsons mentioned the massacre site to the press. Today to force to government to grant them 400 acres of land. The dispute is over the Debing Creek Mission for Aborigines established at the turn of the century. At present the land is leased for renting. The controversy started yesterday when about 100 Aborigines met at the site to put down a shed built on claimed burial sites. People had been using the shed for drinking alcohol and using drugs. An estimated 70 supporters attended the sit-in, including some from the Brisbane Tribal Council. Uncle Budger declared, We are here to stay. The land is ours and we will stay until we get the freehold title to the land, not just a deed in trust. We are prepared to stay here indefinitely until we get some justice from the state government. My grandmother was born there and she and her people put a lot of effort into the land to make it beautiful. We want to eventually use it as a cultural reserve for Aboriginal and white children. Or it could be a solution to the problem of Aboriginal alcoholics, glue sniffers and street kids. It's up to the younger generation like me to come forward and claim the land. The sit-in lasted until February 1986, when the Morden Council decided to evict the claimants and the city of Ipswich threatened legal action against the sovereign originals for occupying their ancestral reserve site and demanding the protection of the graves of their ancestors, so they lifted camp and left. Aboriginal Affairs Minister Bob Catter said if the Aborigines in question felt dispossessed they could go and live on one of the reserves that is already operating. He refused categorically to negotiate with the Aboriginal group, to receive their claims or to get involved in their protection and that of the site. There are three million hectares in Queensland that have always belonged to the Aboriginal people making the Aborigines some of the richest people in the world. How could any serious or sane person ask for more land when they already own a huge area of the state, commented Minister Bob Catter. Minister Catter intended to have the state sell the land to developers who wanted to build a golf course. Mr Davidson called on the state government to prove it owned the land. We believe the Duke and Duchess of Yorkshire granted us the 400 acres on behalf of Queen Victoria. This story has been told to generations after generations of Aborigines, but we have not yet found evidence to support it. This direct action and occupation of the site and adjacent private lands was nor approved by Frances Wright as it interfered with her fundraiser project, and it was regarded by the investigating officer of the welfare services as an internal dispute within the Davidson family. The two camp sites established for the 1985 sit-in have continued to be used until this day by the community for the site's protection. The occupation of the grounds was called a cultural camp, and elders like Auntie Evie Dodds and Nan Mona Parsons informed the press of the presence of massacre sites, with human remains at the mission. In 1991, Francis Wright denounced the illegal removal of sand from Debing Creek encroaching on the cemetery reserve, which had exposed some skeletal remains. 
an officer of the Department of Family Services of Aboriginal Islanders Affairs photographed the damages. The Morden Shire ordered the landowners to cease their illegal digging, who then applied for a permit, but it was refused to them. That same year, the land was to be sold and subdivided. The Brisbane Tribal Council organised a meeting on October 2 for a land claim led by Don Davidson, Sugar Ray Robinson and Theo Wright, under the State Government Land Rights Act, asking to avoid the subdivision and for action to be taken, to secure title to this land on behalf of the Aboriginal people who lived there and their ancestors. Discussions included an extension of the Reserve Gazetted in 1976 to its former size. On November 27, a meeting was held at Ipswich with two MLA, the solicitor, and an officer of the Department of Aboriginal and Islander Affairs that was managing the cemetery reserve under the Land Act 1962-1988, with representatives of the Brisbane Tribal Council and of the recently formed Uringapool Aboriginal Association. It was decided that the land was not available as a claim under the Aboriginal Land Act 1991, since it had been declared freehold, after being held as a perpetual lease selection by the Crown. The association wanted to enlarge the boundaries of the gazetted reserve for cemetery purposes, but it was denied to them on the premises that it had been gazetted before the land around it was freeholded. The official refusal to enlarge the cemetery reserve to include some adjacent land of the former mission did not prevent the Aboriginal community from keeping using the grounds during the following years. In 2001, Les Davidson's grandson, William Davidson, cleaned the cemetery and removed by mistake some of the pegs installed by his grandfather. In 2009, a last burial took place at the cemetery and in 2015 a memorial ashes ceremony occurred. Since the sit-in 35 years ago, there has always been an Aboriginal presence on the grounds at Deebing Creek and an unofficial caretaker residing at the site. Finally, in 2004, the Deebing Creek Cemetery and Mission were registered as State Heritage under the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2003. The following five fundamental principles underlie this Act's main purpose, are, the recognition, protection and conservation of Aboriginal cultural heritage should be based on respect for Aboriginal knowledge, culture and traditional practices, B. Aboriginal people should be recognised as the primary guardians, keepers and knowledge holders of Aboriginal cultural heritage. C. It is important to respect, preserve and maintain knowledge, innovations and practices of Aboriginal communities and to promote understanding of Aboriginal cultural heritage. D. Activities involved in recognition protection and conservation of Aboriginal cultural heritage are important because they allow Aboriginal people to reaffirm their obligations to law and country, e. there is a need to establish timely and efficient processes for the management of activities that may harm Aboriginal cultural heritage. These principles guarantee, in theory, the protection of cultural heritage. 2c. Aboriginal corporations and land title. 
the not-for-profits charity Pergo Elders and Descendants Aboriginal Corporation was established in 1992 with a membership based on families connected to the Pergo Mission. It was incorporated two years later under the Commonwealth Aboriginal Councils and Association Act 1976. In 1997, the Brisbane Tribal Council Inc. purchased a 62-acre property at Perga part of the old mission grounds and with its demise in 1999, the property and its management were vested to the PEDAC. Since 1998, through the acquisition of several grants, the PEDAC has offered services such as training, horticulture, land regeneration, community and cultural events, equipment and maintenance at Perga. In 2000, the state government held hearings and called out developers regarding dodgy land practices and deals at Deebing Creek, over the acquisition of lots where housing developments were soon built. The new neighborhood, ironically or arrogantly, were called Deebing Heights and Sovereign Pocket. It sounds like an allusion to the last pocket of sovereigns still resisting the invasion and assimilation, while the squatters whose pocket is rich invade ancestral sacred lands as self-appointed elite landlords. This was a turning point in the obscure history of the dispossession of the Deebing Creek Aboriginal Reserve of its former territory and lands, through unscrupulous processes turning them into freehold. When lands that had been used by farmers for grazing were sold to developers, heritage was destroyed. In 2003, the PEDAC hired Thomas Abbott of Hanson Advisory Service, as their private project manager. The goals of the PEDAC stated in a 2005 report include to develop business plan, opportunities and partnerships for the community, hire necessary expertise and consultants, identify funding sources, conduct studies, provide historic and cultural information and land regeneration through tree planting. Some nature scenes along Deebing Creek. The ultimate aim of this undertaking is to construct a formalized and sustainable structure for PEDAC operations, while preserving the informal and traditional roles that the elders play within the wider community. It was the main Aboriginal corporation in Ipswich region, but was joined by Jagera-operated corporations Narangori Limited, Jagera Duran Pty Limited, and for the Yugara, the incorporation by Maria Davidson of the Liwaraji Aboriginal Corporation in 2011, which received state awards in 2012. And an award, granted an office building with two years of low rent from Ipswich's Mayor Pasali in 2014. Additional grants, funding and business opportunities were further obtained since. These Aboriginal corporations whose views and objectives make general consensus, and other groups or associations like the Nunakul Yugera Dance Troupe, all engaged in discussions about land title and land use at Deebing Creek, with non-Aboriginal parties including the ILUA National Native Land Title Tribunal, DATSIP, Queensland, Ipswich City Council, Fraser's Property Australia, and other stakeholders. In 2006, the Jagara, Yugara and Yugarapul peoples joined together to file a land title claim through the Native Title Act 1993. 
On September 19, 2008, the Indigenous Land Use Agreement ILUA, registered as the CHI 2007-037 Area Agreement for Tenure Resolution was concluded with the City of Ipswich recognising the Jugara, Yugara and Yugarapul as the traditional owners of 1,200 square kilometres of territory, including the City of Ipswich as well as all the lands around Deebing Creek and Perga Creek. The agreement included cultural heritage management, development of policies and procedures for dealings between the two parties, and shared use of the territory with consented consultation processes. A second claim for land title filed in 2015 by the same Aboriginal group still awaits a final decision. These land use agreements do not provide any real land rights or authority over the territory and they do not make unanimity among the Aboriginal community, being often decried as fraudulent and denounced for a consultation process selecting mainly corporation boards to represent the community. Native titles are merely a symbolic recognition of some tribes as the traditional owners of their lands. The growing opposition among Aboriginal communities across Australia to the Native Title Act and the ILUA is described eloquently in an article from April 2015 in the Courier Mail entitled Indigenous Elders Say Native Title Company Run as a Cash Grab That Pits Clan Against Clan. Here are some excerpts. A company funded to help Aborigines gain native title has been accused of riding the black gravy train and wasting taxpayers' dollars. Queensland South Native Title Services QSNTS, receives up to $12 million annually from the Commonwealth to help Indigenous groups. But dozens of clans have accused the agency of instigating tribal divisions, interfering and drawing out claims for years. 23 years after the landmark Mabo decision in 1992, Indigenous leaders said the native title process had turned into a money-making scheme for lawyers, with Mabo meaning, money available, barristers only. QSNTS defended its record and said it had achieved 12 native title claims since 2008 compared to its predecessor, which had achieved none. The company also said its action plans were accountable to and approved by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Native title recognizes a people's traditional connection to the land since sovereignty but is extinguished by freehold land tiles. Several angry groups have sacked the agency and hired private lawyers to pursue native title, costing hundreds of thousands in legal fees. QSNTS is accused of then instigating court action against them, using public funds to hire expensive lawyers against its former clients, resulting in interference with their claims. Proving a claim required extensive research of historians, linguists, archaeologists and genealogists, which sometimes found groups had mistaken beliefs about their heritage. There are 65 registered native title claims in Queensland, dating back to 1998. Lawyer Colin Hardy, who was Principal Legal Officer at QSNTS and now ACTS privately, claimed the agency had wasted funds on, politically motivated, and, unnecessary, litigation. 
they seem to be more concerned with perpetuating their own existence than getting the job done, Mr. Hardy said. Iman clan representative Patrick Sylvester said QSNTS took a top-down approach and had no respect for traditional owners or native title. They are just there to collect the benefits on the black gravy train, he said. Bigambil spokesman Russell Doctor said his group also sacked QSNTS because the agency was trying to override the clan's vote on which applicants should be listed on their claim. If they can't get their way they will get another group of families to put a claim over you. That's what they did, Mr. Doctor said. Patrick Sylvester from Iman, said his group also broke away from QSNTS when it tried to dictate which family members should be listed as claim applicants. They wanted to set it up to suit themselves, Mr. Sylvester said. The sovereign original peoples refute the need to apply through a complex bureaucratic process within the colonialist legislation system for a tokenistic official title of ownership of the ancestral homelands they have lived on for thousands of years, only to be allowed to negotiate through selected corporate bodies some joint-use agreements of their own territories in highly manipulated legislative procedures. The sovereign originals never ceded their lands by treaty or sale, and they require proof from the British Crown and the Commonwealth of Australia of the legitimacy of their claims of ownership of their lands. The colony of New South Wales was founded on the false claim of Terra Nullius, and with the other British colonies later joining it, was taken over by force, criminal and genocidal violence. British sovereignty was rejected by its own subjects in Australia, with several convict rebellions and escapes from custody, and the Rum Rebellion of 1808, when the New South Wales Corps created in England deposited the governor and took control over the colony for two years, with a military coup. The colonies became a federation in 1902, still without legitimate or legal rights over lands claimed. The newly created state was first assigned the Red Ensign, to replace the British Royal Navy's Union Jacks floating over the land until then to signify the rule of admiralty law in a colonialist legislation. The red colour of the Red Ensign, according to some sources, represented the land of Australia taken through bloodshed. It was replaced by the Blue Ensign in 1954 replacing the country under colonial admiralty law, the blue colour being for the seas, over which British sovereignty is not contested. On the official website of the Australian Government's Treasury, a 2009 document states publicly that, the Australian Government is a privately owned American company. Attached to documents released under a Freedom of Information request seeking access to all documents that confirm the following. Registration with the SEC of the Australian Government Commonwealth of Australia, as a privately owned American company. File number. 333-163307-CIK, 00080515. The said documents reveal that under the 1933 Securities Act, the Commonwealth of Australia became an American-owned corporation while the United States of America is a corporation owned by the Crown Corporation. 
registered at the City of London Corporation, which must give its approval for all flags and coats of arms to become official since the Magna Carta of 1215, explaining why flags worldwide exhibit Masonic symbolism. The history of illegal, immoral and dishonest land claims in Australia gets even more complicated with the modern corporate land grabs, within the frame of a complicit legislation and governmental policies. Knowing that from its own admittance, the Government of Australia is a registered American company, the question of its legitimacy and legality for legislating and using the lands the sovereign originals have been inhabiting for tens of millennia can only bring up uncomfortable truth for the Government of the Commonwealth of Australia and for the British Crown about how they really acquired the lands. Scenes from Pre-Colonial Life in Australia Many scholars and legal experts agree that Australia was illegally settled through invalid claims, violent invasion, land grab, sales of territories never owned and criminal dispossession of the originals. A law review research done in 2017 at the James Cook University by Gary Lilienthal and Naluddin Ahmed studied and explained the reasons why the British and Australian claims to the land are invalid. In Australia, successive governments have sought to extinguish native title, preferring English feudal soakage, but not the Australian indigenous systems of land title. Australian governments want courts, constituted overwhelmingly by non-indigenous lawyers, to decide land disputes as for feudal soakage. Therefore, this article suggests a need to understand this attempted radical reframing of Australian Indigenous titles to land, through the convenient lens of Goffman's frame analysis. The research question is whether Anglo-Australian frame transformation of the Indigenous land titles into mere religion, song and art, extinguishes land title. The article tries to show that Australian Indigenous land title is communal allodial title, as a bundle of subsisting rights by operation of Australian continental common law, which therefore cannot be extinguished by the fraud inherent in frame transformation. Indigenous land title is true communal allodial title, beset by a fraudulent colonial occupation, suggesting a lack of internal reason in colonial policy and administration. Successive governments have tried to frame transform the highly sophisticated and ancient indigenous legal and social system, including sophisticated celestial mapping and navigation systems, into mere religious art. This frame transformation is reversible by epideictic rhetoric. The indigenous system is transmitted phylogenetically, in which governance government officials can have no participation. Indigenous land title cannot be extinguished. The objective of this research is to analyze critically the British colonial understanding of allodial title. Its significance is its substantive grounding in prior Yale. Harvard, and other highly authoritative research, however with entirely new syntheses. Noy stated the rule that any custom should not be construed so as to allow a person to do a wrongful act. Thus, importing a legal maxim such as the basis for English land title into a foreign country by force, as a wrongful act, could well have been a nullity. 
The research question is whether a colonial regime could ever lawfully size the lands of prior undocumented owners, capriciously and without natural justice and procedural fairness, based on imported legal maxims. Argument tries to show that colonizers' claims never exceeded the status of defective applications by way of color of allodial title. The research will show that the entire English colonial system of land law was grounded in a system of foreign customary doctrines. Further, introducing a foreign custom to a new land would always fail for lack of the kind of prescription set out by Noy. Torrens' title was an attempt to cure defects in customary title that had subsisted only in England since ancient Anglo-Saxon times. The real prospect of maladministration of the register would make the objects of Torrens' title difficult to achieve. In Australia, the Crown had tried to introduce English custom in Australia as local law, but they did it by committing serious wrongs. This would nullify introduction of their legal maxims into Australia. Their claims to acquisition of allodial title to Australian lands would thus be sufficiently defective to reduce their holdings to mere colour of title. Their mala fetus in their attempts at land acquisition would defeat any claim to convert their colour of title into a successful claim for adverse possession. 3. Indigenous sovereignty and colonialism. 3a The Original Peoples. The original peoples of the land known as Australia, commonly called Aboriginals or Aborigines, are the descent of humanity's oldest living cultures, from archaeological and anthropological consensus. Just a century ago, their continuous history and cultures was dated to merely 8 to 15,000 years since their arrival in their lands, but today the general consensus accepts 60,000 to 70,000 years. A recent discovery in 2020 of a fishing village in western Victoria has been dated to 120,000 years old. The oldest rock paintings, stone tools and stone arrangements in the world are all found from Australia. Before historic times, the original peoples had their own forms of organisation, with their social law, cultural customs and spiritual law, that were handed down from their ancestors since the dream time, and transmitted through wise elders, headmen, chiefs and leaders representing the tribe's main authority. Throughout their long history, the original peoples had also developed their own protocols and ways to address potential crimes and conflicts between tribes, that were at times settled through ritual fights. These battles were organized between rival tribes under certain agreements and conditions to observe. Those rules prevented conflicts from stretching over long periods or taking too many lives on all sides. Contrarily to what is generally taught, the original peoples were not all living in small nomadic groups of hunters and gatherers, although some did. In some regions, like along the east and southeast coast, they lived mostly in semi-permanent villages that could host hundreds of inhabitants, either in humpies covered with large leaves, thatch or straw, or in round, rectangular or honeycomb-shaped stone houses. They left stone farming terraces, stone fish traps along the shores, and ceremonial stone arrangements. 
they had developed agriculture and baked the first seed bread in human history over 20,000 years ago. They had managed and shaped their landscapes for millennia through the practice of firestick farming, also called cold burning or cultural burning, consisting in periodically lighting some controlled fires to clear the brush and grassland, contributing to create savannas and open undergrowth to attract game and stimulate regrowth, while opening land for camping space and planting yams, or fruit and nut trees. Reports from the first Europeans describe the lands as well-maintained gardens, worthy of rich palaces. The origins of the original peoples of Australia has been debated in conflicting and opposed theories. According to anthropological and linguistic studies, added more recently to genetic research, clues indicate that there could have been more than one wave of migration that populated the country prior to historic colonization, possibly up to four successive waves. Theories and research which do not make consensus are described here as simple references. As a general rule, certain studies show that First, the tribes in South and Southwest Australia have clearer skins and more body hair. They have thicker bones and are more genetically related to the indigenous Ainus of Japan. Secondly, tribes in Western Central and Northwestern Australia have smooth, wavy hair and finer noses, and are more genetically close to the Dravidian people of Southern India. A widely shared opinion among scholars believes they might have introduced the dingo around 4,000 years ago, whose closest relative is the South Asian grey wolf. Thirdly, tribes of the northeast are taller, slimmer, with long limbs, wide nose, darker skin, frizzy hair. They are genetically and linguistically related to Austronesian groups like the Papuans and Melanesians. And fourthly, up into historic times there were in the mountainous rainforests of Queensland, New South Wales and Tasmania some tribes who were classified as pygmies or negritos, with a very short stature, very dark skin and frizzy hair. Although this is mostly denied by today's academics, those tribes' diversity of the original peoples of Australia were observed, studied and photographed until the 1940s in New South Wales and in Queensland. Following those years they seem to have vanished, probably assimilated in other mixed groups through removals in missions, causing the dispersal and erasure of their tribes, which could explain today's general denial of their previous existence. Pygmies and related groups sailed and inhabited distant islands from the Andaman in the Indian Ocean, to Indonesia, the Philippines, and New Guinea. Whatever were the origins of the first peoples in what is called today Australia, wherever they came from or whenever they first or last arrived, what is undeniable is that they are the living representatives of the most ancient continuous cultures on Earth, dating several tens of thousands of years at the least. Although some cultural traits are shared among most tribes, like painting bodies with ochre, they do not form a monolithic homogeneous culture, but rather a rich diversity of languages, cultures and societies. While it can be difficult to draw a clear line between the different groups as they kept intermingling, linguists have listed between five and six hundred different Aboriginal tribal languages and dialects. 
Some of the symbols they are best known for were not shared by all tribes in all parts of the country. The boomerang was not used in Tasmania while the didgeridoo was originally only used in the north. The bow and arrows were not in use in continental Australia, but only in the Torres Strait Islands. The spear and spear thrower, the nullah or club and the stone axe were widespread through all the tribes. Shields were made out of boards cut out from living scar, trees, most often ovoid, as well as canoes. Fishing nets, bags and baskets were woven from fibers. In some regions, furs were worn in cold season. It is practically impossible today to know the real number of the population of pre-colonial Australia. The most generally accepted estimates range between a quarter of a million to one million inhabitants. These numbers could be a very conservative guess, given two centuries of genocidal policies and systematic massacres in all parts of Australia, that have been counted out of the equation too easily. According even to the most conservative estimates, 90% of the Aboriginal population was eliminated. With a minimum of 500 nations, if each was counting 2,000 members, the total population would have reached 1 million. Yet some nations were much more numerous, like the Yugara who were evaluated at 16,000, but their population dropped by over three quarters within a few decades. As the oldest cultures on Earth that evolved independently from the rest of the world over vast lands, the originals could very well have numbered in the millions prior to colonization, two and a half centuries ago. In 1911, there were 100,000 left. Today their number reaches over 800,000, forming only 3% of Australia's population, still recovering collectively from centuries of genocide and depopulation. Many still practice their ancient art and ancestral ceremonies, and some still speak their old languages. The ancient stories from dream time are still transmitted through the lore and the songlines on it. In spite of the trials of late, the oldest nations on Earth preserve their sovereignty they never ceded. 3b – The False Claimer Discovery and Terra Nullius. Terra Australis was a hypothetical continent conceived in antiquity, not from observation but from the theory that landmasses in the southern hemisphere should balance the landmasses in the northern half. It was depicted on ancient maps and named as early as in the 2nd century BC and until the 18th century. Since ancient Roman throughout the Middle Age, Terra Australis was believed to exist somewhere. It was generally depicted as a vast land at the South Pole, resembling more to Antarctica than Australia. From the 16th to the 18th centuries, Terra Australis appeared in many different locations and shapes on maps mostly created from imagination, and the name was attributed successively to various places like Pre-colonial lifestyles Tierra del Fuego or New Guinea, but in the collective conception it was seen as a land at the South Pole. It has been suggested that sailors of antiquity came to Australia from places like Egypt, Arabia, Persia, India, Indonesia, China, Polynesia and South America. 
In some cases, certain archaeological or cultural clues could indicate that it could have been the case, although none of those theories are mainstream. One thing that is sure is that James Cook was not the first sailor nor the first European in Australia. In 1606, Dutch explorer Willem Janszoon landed on the west side of Cape York, after crossing the strait months before Spanish explorer Torres, who gave it its name. Janszoon returned in 1618, followed by 29 other Dutch sailors during the 17th century who explored the western south coast and called the land New Holland. In 1642, Abel Tasman landed in what was later called Tasmania, which he had himself baptized Anthunage van Demian's Island, with the Governor-General's name. Tasmania was not known to be an island nor shown as such on early maps until it was circumnavigated in 1798, while New Holland as Australia was called, was thought to be a part of Asia. During that same period, the Makassar people from Sulawesi and other islands of Indonesia were sailing regularly to northwest Australia to harvest sea cucumbers or trepang and to trade with the locals. The Makassan Trapangas operated for thousands of kilometres along the northwestern coastline of Australia and stayed for four months out of the year to fish, boil and dry trepang to carry back for trade. They called Arnhem Land, Marage, the Wild Country, and named the Kimberley region Kiyujawa. The Makassan Trapang trade in Australia might have started as early as the 16th century and lasted until 1907, after Australia introduced duties and licence fees that made the trade unworthy of the market. They have left their influence in the cultures and languages of many tribes, notably the Yolngu peoples. Hence, when James Cook sailed to the land then called New Holland, he had been preceded by many. He arrived as a lieutenant first mandated to study the Venus transit in Tahiti in 1769, from where his next orders were to find the mythical Terra Australis. He circumnavigated and mapped New Zealand and on April 19, 1770, in his first voyage, he reached Australia, on the southeastern coast, from where he sailed north along the east coast. Four days later, he reported his first observation of indigenous at Brush Island and wrote that they were so near the shore as to distinguish several people upon the sea beach, they appeared to be of a very dark or black color but whether this was the real color of their skins or the clothes they might have on I know not. From the beginning, Cook knew that it was not an uninhabited no man's land or terra nullius, making the foundation of the British claim over Australia. On the 29th, he landed for the first time in a place he first called Stingray Bay, but later crossed and renamed more attractively Botany Bay, as the two expeditions botanists gathered specimens there. Cook sailed up the east coast of the land known as New Holland and claimed it all as British territory. He never returned there in his two following voyages and never called the land by the name Australia. Yet his claim to the newly sighted continent was the basis for the British colonisation of those lands, that started eight years later and has been illegally ongoing until this day in sovereign original lands. 
Cook did not think he had found Terra Australis, which was thought to be further south, and he kept searching for it in two subsequent voyages, sailing the Antarctic Ocean as far south as the 71st parallel. It was not until the early 1800s, decades later, that the country would be called Australis or Australia. The Roman legend came to life, whether it was born from early fragmented reports or simple fantasies. Yet, in its original concept, Terra Australis was meant to be situated at the South Pole, like Antarctica. But Cook fantasized and lied about having discovered Terra Nullius, omitting to mention the original inhabitants, in order to promote British claim over a land they knew nothing of, nor of its population. Pre-colonial ceremonies, Bora, Corroboree. For British colonialism, Cook is a celebrated hero who expanded the empire by claiming Australia, New Zealand, the west coast of Canada and islands like Hawaii, but for the indigenous, Cook was an invader who came to usurp land ownership title through relations, either non-existent like in Australia, or tensed, at times violent, with the tribes he met, from whom his ultimate purpose was to steal land. Cook or the following colonists never declared war, signed treaties or bought the land from the owners. They only claimed the lands illegitimately, through their foreign illegal system and doctrine of tenure. Such illegal claims of the doctrine of discovery were used to justify centuries of genocides and crimes. In 2020, the 250th anniversary of Cook's voyage was to be marked by Aboriginal protest nationwide, but the pandemic gathering restrictions prevented this major event from manifesting as planned, yet in early June, the Black Lives Matter rallies filled the streets of major cities as Aboriginal Lives Matter. This, as a series of recent events, show that the never-ceded sovereignty of the original peoples has still not been addressed, recognized and considered by the colonialist and by definition racist and discriminatory system of foreign laws that have been imposed through illegal wars and criminal ACTS. There is no justice for the indigenous within the colonialist legislation and there could be no issue solved and no reconciliation possible until their legitimate sovereignty over their lands becomes law. 1770 for the original peoples marks the beginning of the plans for the following invasion that brought genocides and dispossession for their tribes and has lasted to this day, with corporate destruction of their sacred grounds and their over-representation in jails or as victims of police brutality. The arrival of Cook, whom they called Greedy Pelican, was a sign of the start of their dispossession. Two and a half centuries later the originals still wait to be recognized as sovereigns on their own lands. 3c – The beginning of the imposed colonialist regime. The tragedy for Australia's original peoples really started with the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788. Eleven ships under the command of Captain Arthur Phillip, carrying around 1,500 passengers arrived first in Botany Bay between 18 and 20 January, which proved to be less suitable as a harbour than Cook had written, being unprotected, with waters too shallow for ships to near the shore. 
The ships carried approximately 500 officers and officials, seamen, marines and their families, and 1,000 convicts, charged with a variety of crimes, like theft, robbery, assault or perjury. About one-sixth of the group were women and children and one-third were seamen, sailors and soldiers. Two-thirds were convicts condemned to exile and forced labor, to found the new distant penal colony. Over the next 90 years, over 160,000 convicts including 24,000 women, one out of seven, were sent to New South Wales, Tasmania and West Australia, forming the majority of colonial immigrants. Without any practical knowledge of the size, shape, history, cultures or environment of the newly discovered fifth continent, using illegally the fraudulent and invalid theory of terra nullius as its argument, Britain declared the east coast of today's Australia as the New South Wales penal colony. Britain had been using its 13 colonies in North America to send its convicts, but the recent American War of Independence pushed the British Crown to send its convicts to New South Wales. After the loss of the United States, the British Empire aimed at conserving its size by claiming the southern colony of New South Wales, in the land previously called New Holland by the Dutch. In Botany Bay the convicts tried to cut some trees, but their wood was so hard, they broke their axes. There they met the Cadigal tribe, who were curious but suspicious of the newcomers into their lands. On January 21, Philip explored the coast and decided to move the settlement north to Port Jackson. Depictions of the arrival of the First Fleet. On the 24th, two French ships arrived at Botany Bay for weeks, the scientific expedition of La Perouse. On January 26, the First Fleet moved to Port Jackson in a place Philip named Sydney Cove, after the British Home Secretary. It was common practice among the colonialists to christen places with names of foreign rulers, ministers or officers they were responding to or receiving funding from, but who had no knowledge or nothing to do with the lands given their names, which they most often never even visited. Those random places' names were then transcribed on maps to pursue claiming lands for new colonies. Hence, 26 January 1788 marked the establishment of the penal colony of New South Wales and the beginning of the British invasion of the land owned by the sovereign original peoples in Australia. The date is celebrated as Australia Day, but the originals call it Invasion Day and a day of mourning. Philip's assignment was to establish a penal colony with his group of convicts under military guard but fearing the French would take over Norfolk Island, he sent a ship there to start another colony. Within months, all the ships of the First Fleet but one had been dispatched to other lands, one to start another penal colony on Norfolk Island, three to China, two got wrecked, the rest returned to England. This left the new colony of New South Wales without contact or supplies from the outside world, until two years later with the arrival of the Second Fleet, counting eleven more ships and their passengers. The new colony struggled for its survival, with supplies soon running out and no agricultural expertise, it soon faced starvation. 
the situation degenerated into chaos, the Marines were undisciplined and the growing insubordination among the convicts led Philip to appoint overseers to lead convicts to work. In March 1789, as supplies were exhausted, 16 hungry convicts marched to Botany Bay to raid and plunder a native fishing camp but they were met with resistance, leaving one dead and seven wounded. The survivors alerted the army, but Philip decided not to retaliate and punished the convicts instead. Under Philip's rule, floggings and hangings were common, stealing food meant a hanging sentence. The governor represented the newly imposed colonial authority, including the administration of justice. But justice properly defined had little to do with the policies affecting both colonists and indigenous. The newly established colony made of convicts with their military escort assumed its claim of the land was valid and that British law was now ruling it, without consideration for the existing law of the land. To this day, the jurisdiction of British laws in Australia remains to be proven and is considered as null and void by the original peoples who never ceded their sovereignty and law nor accepted British rule. Governor Philip wrote, The laws of this country England, will of course, be introduced in New South Wales, and there is one that I would wish to take place from the moment His Majesty's forces take possession of the country that there can be no slavery in a free land, and consequently no slaves. This statement might sound odd, or signify that there was no use for slaves in a penal colony that he called a free land, where three-quarters of the population were convicts condemned to forced labor. But in spite of this wish expressed by Philip, it was not long before the colonists started taking natives into slavery and forced labor in mines, on plantations, ranches or estates, for a century and a half. Most of Australia's short history was marked with genocide, massacres, enslavement and exploitation. In Sydney, the fleet encountered the Bidjigal clan of the Eora or Eura people with whom conflicts would soon erupt. The fleet had brought with its human cargo other passengers that became invading species like rabbits, dogs, pigs and horses, or vermin-like rats, fleas, lice, cockroaches, and introduced new diseases to the continent and its population, namely smallpox that killed a large number of indigenous in 1789, one year after the fleet arrived. Some historians believe that the smallpox was transmitted intentionally to the natives, as it had been a common practice of the British colonial troops. Others blame the epidemic on the widespread practice of variolation, which was part of mainstream medicine in England since the beginning of the 18th century. This practice, the precursor of vaccination, consisted in the inoculation of variolated tissues into patients, to develop their immunity to smallpox. Hundreds of thousands of people had been inoculated in England alone at the time of the first fleet. The methods used were diverse and experimental, and although variolation had been sanctioned and popular among European dynasties, it claimed many lives, including that of Prince Octavius in 1783. Soon after their arrival, Philip suggestively recorded, The living conditions need to improve or my men won't work as hard, so I have come to a conclusion that I must hire surgeons to fix the convicts. 
conditions on the transports were precarious and hygiene was very poor, especially for the convicts often confined below decks. About 50 people died during the voyage of the first fleet and a similar number arrived sick. The second fleet was a disaster and the deadliest voyage in Australia's history. Out of over 1,000 convicts, around one quarter died on the way, half landed sick and about 40% were dead within six months after their arrival. Less than one quarter of them were females. They arrived covered with lice and fleas, half naked, and many of them could not walk or barely move. The command of the fleet went on a short trial for bad treatments of the convicts, but was acquitted. The smallpox epidemic started one year before the arrival of the second fleet and wiped many natives while spreading through tribes, but with this additional disembarkation of a new group of immigrants including many sick and weak people, suspicions and tensions with the colonists grew among natives. In December 1790, McIntyre, a convict hunting for Philippines suspected of having killed aboriginals, had a skirmish with natives and was speared, he died eleven days later. Pemelwoy, known as a clever man or feather-foot shaman who became the leader of the Bidjigal, had been trading meat for goods with the colonists. He was still young when he speared McIntyre, on this first time he killed a colonist. Angered, Philip sent a punitive expedition of 49 marines, ordering the two Bidjagal be captured, and ten killed and beheaded, but the party searched in vain for natives without encountering any of them. This largest military expedition to date in Australia in December 1790, returned unsuccessful after three days, but sent a clear message to the indigenous that the colonists were ready for war and killings. Days later, a second expedition of 40 men ended in a fiasco, sunk in mud, losing half of its muskets. Seeing their demise, Philip ordered that every Aboriginal transgressing the colony's laws should be severely punished and thus, the colonialist segregation laws started to be imposed on the indigenous. Marines opened fire on Aboriginals picking potatoes in a garden, killing one and arresting three others. While ordering that colonists should harm no natives, Philip sent a detachment of 44 men to Botany Bay to arrest dead or alive the six natives involved in McIntyre's death, and wage terror raids. The goal, he stated, was to convince them of British superiority, and to infuse an universal terror. This was his definition of applying the British law in the yet unexplored New South Wales colony, with no knowledge of the terrain, or consideration for the sovereign original tribes, their law and rights. This expedition only saw a few indigenous fleeing in the distance, but did not succeed in capturing any. In January 1791, a second detachment of 38 soldiers was sent to conduct a night attack on a village, but again the expedition was a total failure, unable to surprise any Aboriginal at close range. Four military expeditions within two months had proven the British troops unable to capture one Aboriginal, to force them into submission to the colonial rule, to have them lose any fight or battle, nor to have them surrender their sovereignty, even less so to convince them of the British superiority. 
Then, over the course of 1791, eleven more ships composing the Third Fleet arrived in Sydney, carrying an additional 2,000 convicts minus a tent that died on the journey, escorted by about 500 more military and seamen, increasing the colony's population to over 4,000, with three-quarters of convicts. Tensions mounted. Governor Philip issued an order authorizing colonists to shoot aboriginals on sight. Military posses sent to track the natives usually returned on foot with their number reduced. If they returned, as with spears, clubs, boomerangs and stones, the indigenous kept defeating the British army. At least two convicts escaped the penal colony to join the native resistance against the colonial rule. This situation would repeat many times over the years of the penal colonies, with hundreds of escapes. Pemelwoy led a war of resistance to evict the invaders. He resisted twelve years until he was killed. During the following years, Pemelwoy convinced the Eora, Darug and Tawil tribes to band together against the invaders and series of raids started being led against the colonist settlements. The tactic used consisted in burning crops and killing cattle, to starve the invaders. Between 1794 and 1799, about 34 Aboriginals and 18 Europeans were reported killed, and then no killings were recorded for three years. Raids on the colony slowed down after 1797, partly because Pemelwoy had been severely wounded. But in 1801, Governor King offered a reward for Pemelwoy's head, who was shot the following year. King then wrote, Although a terrible pest to the colony, he was a brave and independent character. His head was preserved in alcohol and sent to England. In 2010, Sydney Aboriginals requesting the repatriation of his skull were answered by Prince William that it would be returned, but the skull was apparently not found with the remains of 3,000 Aboriginals in the Natural History Museum's collection. Pemelwoy's son, Tedbury or Jedborough, continued to fight the invaders, until he was also killed in 1810. Meanwhile, in 1794, the new Governor Hunter started granting and leasing tribal lands to colonists in His Majesty's Territory of New South Wales, as if the British colonial government had any jurisdiction, authority or legal right to give or lease land that was not theirs and already owned by sovereign tribes. This colonial policy consisting in granting lands not owned constitutes the foundation of British Australia's claim to lands owned by sovereign First Nations and never ceded through sales or treaties. This illegal and fraudulent process of invading Indigenous lands makes the Australians of immigrated origins and their government mere squatters on lands they never owned, according to international law. The first year, land grants represented 2,000 acres, then ten years later in 1804, 30,000 acres of the best fertile tribal lands along thriving rivers were allocated to colonists by Governor King. This policy of illegal land grab and invasion caused conflicts with natives, so the army was dispatched. Aboriginals were banned from white settlements, started being hunted down and their camps destroyed. 
They conducted small guerrilla attacks on fields and isolated farms, especially by the Hawkesbury and Nepean rivers where the colonists had just settled the lands newly allocated by the colonial governor. The British troops were conducting large-scale raids on Aboriginal villages, hunting down the fugitives. Barely ten years later, in 1814, the occasional raids and skirmishes were escalated into a full-range continuous frontier war of extermination, which was first called the Hawkesbury and Nepean War. Killings of women and children became common, as mutilation and carrying of body parts as trophies. The initial colonial punitive expeditions turned into periodic massacres with torture, rape and cruelties. In 1816, Governor Macquarie sent several parties of the 46th Regiment on killing campaigns, and he signed a proclamation ordering the troops and magistrates to support settlers in driving off the natives, making official the genocidal invasion policy of land grab through systematic carnage and massacres. Survivors, mostly women and children, started already then to be kept in missions as prisoners of war. This genocidal policy lasted throughout the whole invasion of the territories that make Australia today. Today, revisionists try to minimise the massacres and embellish the perpetrators, arguing there was no genocide, since the term was not existing yet, and the invaders were doing their military duty in a war. Aboriginal people are the skeleton in the cupboard of Australia's national life. Outcasts in our own land, said Aboriginal activist pastor Sir Douglas Nichols, at National Day of Mourning Speech, 1938, 3D Australia Day or Invasion Day, a day of mourning. Hence, within the first year following January 26, 1788, the colonists introduced a deadly epidemic. Before two years, they had sent four military expedition against the indigenous, and engaged in a war. Within six years, the colonial authorities illegally started giving away tribal land they had never owned. And before thirty years, they had made genocidal land grab and the killing of natives their official policy. The systemic killings and the armed invasion through force and violence became the backbone of the colony's growth. Barely 14 years after it adopted the name of Australia, it is known by nowadays. While modern day Australia tries to deny its history, turns the blind eye, tries to turn the page and diminish the significance of past events, the very legitimacy of its foundation and legal system is null. All of the territory of what forms Australia today was claimed though the same illegal violent process. For the sovereign original peoples, this is not just an issue of the past, as they are still the most destitute and oppressed in their own homelands, while the colonialist society prospers from this theft. Any significant reconciliation requires repair through not only recognition and apologies, but through the restitution to sovereign original peoples of their land rights and prosperity from their resources, and through the recognition and respect of their own law and law and sacred connection to the lands. Such recognition needs to be more than a mere symbolic title, it must include sovereign land rights.
This is not a simple request, a mere plea, a demand or a claim, it is the undeniable, legitimate and legal acknowledgement of factual truth, of the never ceded sovereignty of indigenous over their lands and of the innate rights and rightful authority the original owners have been systematically deprived of, through openly condoned, then covered up and denied genocide and discriminatory colonialist policies. The British Crown and its colonies that became the Commonwealth of Australia have wrongfully and illegally assumed that they owned the land, but cannot provide any legal proof of their claims, since they never officially declared war on any original nation they attacked. They never signed any treaty with any of them. None of these First Nations ever sold their lands to the Crown or the Commonwealth. Historically, the original people have not been allowed to partake in the Commonwealth, gained from their homelands, which they call stolen wealth, adding to the long list of their dispossession which includes stole lands, stolen generations and stolen wages, not mentioning rights and freedom. This is why for them, Australia Day is a day of mourning, celebrating the start of colonialist invasion. In 1938, on the 150th anniversary of the debarkation of convicts and soldiers of the First Fleet at Sydney Cove, on January 26, 1788, the first rally to protest against Australia Day started, as the Aboriginal peoples were already raising their voices, calling for a nationwide day of mourning. The Australian government organised a reenactment of the debarkation of Philip and his officers, and forcibly abducted 25 Aboriginal men, singers and dancers from the distant Menindee Mission to do a public performance, since the local Aboriginals in Sydney refused to play the role in the act. The Menindee dancers were arrested and taken in custody for a week in police barracks in Sydney, some thinking they would be massacred. They were ordered to dance under the leadership of an Aboriginal man they did not know and who did not speak their language. When they expressed their disagreement, they were threatened of having rations cut, and the rations of their people on the mission. They were forced to perform a dance and then to retreat at the arrival of the British, a scene depicting fictitiously the pretended British superiority, as if the indigenous had not fought back or if the invasion had been a peaceful act of manifest destiny, without any bloodshed, massacres or genocide. The truth is that indigenous did not simply step back submitted and consenting, as the British troops advanced, nor was the invasion done by playing drums and military tunes, but with guns and poisons. Reenactment of the arrival of the First Fleet in Sydney 1938, natives forced to retreat and flee. Aborigines Progressive Association at Day of Mourning Protest in Sydney in 1938. Meanwhile, the Aborigines Progressive Association led by Aboriginal rights leaders William Ferguson and John Patton organised the first protest in Sydney to denounce Australia Day as a day of mourning. They intervened for the detainees to the Protection Board to obtain their liberation but without success. In spite of being forbidden to reach the prisoners, they ask them to not take part in the mortifying retreat from the first party of Englishmen, depicting a biased colonialist version of Australia's history. But they could not prevent this distasteful enactment to take place nor the abductees to be abstained. 
This is how Australia celebrated its 150th anniversary of genocidal history, while massacres still took place in some parts, and the Aboriginals were held under paternalist tutelage and control of protectors. The Aborigines Progressive Association was also leading a campaign for equal rights for Aboriginals. In January 1938, they published a pamphlet entitled Aborigines Claim Citizen Rights, which was a plea for Aboriginals to be granted citizenship and the same fundamental rights as every Australian citizens. Around 100 Aboriginal civil rights protesters were allowed to march at the end of the parade. They were allowed in the Australian Hall, but through the back door, and read publicly a declaration calling for an inquiry into the treatment of Indigenous on government missions and for equal rights. They also demanded that other lands than the missions be recognised as Aboriginal lands and homes. Although they were allowed to speak, none of their request was heard or produced any results then. We refused to be pushed into the background. We have decided to make ourselves heard. White men pretend that the Australian Aboriginal is a low type who cannot be bettered. Our reply to that is, give us the chance. We do not want to be left behind in Australia's march to progress. We ask for full citizens' rights, stated Mr Patton, President of the Aborigines Progressive Association, at the meeting. It was not until 1967, 29 years later, that they obtained through a referendum the Australian citizenship and the rights to move about freely without permits, and to live their lives without control. Yet, over the years, a large number of Aboriginals if not the majority, have come to refuse to call themselves Australian citizens or to see themselves as subjects of the British Crown, asserting their never ceded sovereignty and right to self-determination, outside of the colonialist system of legislation. The sovereign originals came to the understanding that there will never be justice for them nor any representation of their voices within the Australian colonialist and discriminatory constitutional laws. This understanding was openly stated and was a main focus of Aboriginal protests on the bicentenary of so-called Australia Day in 1988, when the name Invasion Day became widespread. The Aboriginal tent embassy movement started in every major city, and caravans from all parts of Australia brought about 40,000 Aboriginals to the Sydney Rally, for the largest Indigenous gathering in Australia's history. Tent embassies have not all survived, but the one in front of the old parliament in Canberra has been continuously occupied since 1972, proclaiming the sovereignty of the originals in their homelands and exposing the fact that the Australian government is an illegally imposed institution on their peoples. The central concerns of the Aboriginal civil rights activist movement have been the same unaddressed issues for decades, regarding their never ceded sovereignty and land rights over their ancestral lands. Since decades, there has been a growing movement denouncing Australia Day as a day of mourning, increasingly expanding in recent years, many asking to change the date or make it a day of apologies. Rallies happen every year in all major cities calling the celebration of Australia Day as Invasion Day. 
the campaign for a referendum to include the Aboriginals in the Australian Constitution in recent years that culminated with the Uluru Statement from the Heart showed the consensus among Indigenous elders and tribes is not for their recognition as Australian citizens, but as sovereign original peoples, with land rights over their ancestral homelands and self-determination, with their own social law. On January 21, 2017, the Sovereign Union published a statement in the media's, shared in parts below. By Giller. Michael Anderson, convener of the Sovereign Union, last surviving member of the founding four of the Aboriginal Embassy and head of state of the ULAI People's Republic. I welcome the debate raging over Invasion Day v Australia Day. Truth must prevail. The bottom line is there is nothing to celebrate, not even for the non-Aboriginal majority, because Australia is not an independent nation. Unlike most other nations around the world there is no day when Australia can identify it was given its independent status free of the sovereignty of the British Crown with a new constitution. There has been no day when Australia decolonised so that there is no longer a constitutional obligation for the British Crown, that is the Queen and or her agents, the Governor-General and Governors, to place their signatures on legislations passed by the Parliaments and thereby assent and make them legal. The Governor-General is still Commander-in-Chief of the Army, Navy and Air Force. Let me turn quickly to the question of land. If all persons who have title to land pull their title deeds out of the cupboards, banks or wherever they are they will see that in those title deeds they do not own the land legally because the documents actually say they are tenants in common with the Crown of England. It is not true that they have full entitlement and ownership of that land, because Australia's land grab is based on an ancient feudal land system. Even the High Court in Joos v. Asik 1998 Justice Hain could not identify a single day that Australia could celebrate as a true day of liberation from the British Crown. Australia attained international recognition of its independent and sovereign identity when it signed the Treaty of Versailles or when it became a founding member of the International Labour Organization. Yet treaties made by Australia, including in particular the arrangements reflected in the Statute of Westminster Adoption Act 1942-100, were not registered as international arrangements as was required by those parts of the Treaty of Versailles establishing the League of Nations. Again this is said to lead in some unspecified way to the invalidating of some legislation. Joos v Australian Securities and Investment Commission 1998. We do need a day when our First Nations people and the rest can truly celebrate an historic occasion. It is illegal under international law to celebrate genocide. Let me refocus on Invasion Day, Australia Day event that completely misrepresented the truth of Philip's arrival to the shores of Port Jackson. The event took place at the 150th anniversary of Philip's landing in Sydney Cove where on 26 January 1788 he established a British penal colony. This was not a free settled colony. This was a penal colony. 
Here the situation is different from the African colonial experiences I referred to in Uniting Understanding where the British negotiated trade treaties and used them to falsely represent a legal claim to sovereignty over their territories, but failed. In our case here the British established a perimeter for their penal colony entitled the Limit of Location. It was members of the British aristocracy and business people who went beyond the limit of location and invaded our lands. The efforts of these rich aristocrats and those opportunists hungry for land who misused the Crown's assertion of sovereignty over the land. The 26th of January 1788 is the day when the British formally announced their intention to take the land and resettle their criminals within the limit of location. Philip's role was to establish a prison system on our lands. British documents evidence the fact the British authorities never intended for their criminals to ever return to their own countries. This became a full-scale invasion and occupation of our lands. If we are to take a long hard look at the convicts, we will see that most of them in reality were political prisoners from Scotland and Ireland, with a mix of common thieves who stole for survival out of sheer necessity. On 26 January 1938, the 150th anniversary of the First Fleet's arrival, the New South Wales government officials rounded up some Aboriginal people at the Brewarrina Government Mission Station, members of my family and other countrymen, and without their consent brought them to Sydney to participate in a cruel reenactment of the landing at Sydney Cove. The relucant Aboriginal participants were not housed in hotels, but rather were housed and fed in the lock-up cells beneath the Darlinghurst courts for three to four days. They did not have the opportunity to mix with the whites and others for a drink, or a barbecue. No, they were brought to Sydney Cove, Farm Cove to do their thing and then were taken back to their cells. No one has explained what happened after that. All we are told was that they were accompanied by the manager of the Brewarrina Mission Station and taken home the same way they came to Sydney, on the train under guard. When we view the footage of the re-enactment from John Pilger's documentary Secret Country we do not see any confrontations between the local native, people of Port Jackson and Phillips invading group of armed marines. This historical untruth is deeply embedded in contemporary white Australian tradition and belief systems. The reality is Philip was confronted with a strong resistance and complained back to England later that the natives were more numerous than anticipated. He instilled terror in the locals by instructing Watkin Tench to kill 40 and take their heads. When Philip ran low on ammunition it was about this time that there a smallpox outbreak amongst Camaragal on the opposite side of the harbour from Sydney Cove. Australian is still a country in total denial of its genocidal past and its racist and genocidal policies of today. How do we come to these conclusions? Easy. Australia is a country that 1 does not have its own sovereignty because it rules and governs in right of the British Crown, and it is the British Crown that holds an illegal sovereign claim to this country. 2. Is condemned by the UN for its racist policies and is still on the CERD's early warning and urgent action, procedure. 3. 
is an autocracy based on its own constitution. Autocracy is a form of government where the monarch is unlimited by law. The autocrat has uncontrolled and undisputed authority. Its power is maintained through military or police power. Semicolon. 4. Can never have a legitimate right to become an independent self-governing nation in its own right without the resetting of relations with the sovereign First Nations peoples. The promotion and funding of Australia Day events are criminal. Australians of today celebrate a day they know nothing about or have little understanding of. But then again the Australian style is to not give a damn, because she'll be right mate, and to hell with the rest. These are the some of the main customary practices of the Australian culture as we know them today. Unfortunately, new Australians have learned very well. Don't get involved in past history, because the situation they come from was so bad that they are grateful for just being here. But, on the other hand, I don't think they have the courage to think or ask otherwise because they know Australia is a ruthless country. The majority of newcomers realise this fact and do not dare to question, but instead are thankful that they were permitted to immigrate here in the first place. Australia Day Invasion Day is a jaunt for most people. Another thing Australian custom dictates is to get a freebie whenever and wherever possible and don't ask questions, just get drunk and accept the delights on offer and f. the rest. At least in 1988 our people protested so much that there was no re-enactment of the landing for the bicentenary, but the tall ships in Sydney Harbour were still celebrated. I guess this must be the starting point for all those who now call themselves Australian. Get it right. They must understand that Australia is an occupied land where the true land owners are demonised and information about us, e.g. that we are lazy and live off welfare by choice, is false. I am not an Australian, I am a ULAI Gomoroi Dethane man, Australia must change and we must lead this change. Gradually the truth of our complex-wise culture is filtering through. The myth of the aimless wanderings of the hunter-gatherers is steadily being replaced by an understanding of our highly evolved law, society and agricultural methods, which operate in harmony with this ancient land and extreme climates. Our methods avoided monoculture and maintained biodiversity and still do. 4. Indigenous sovereignty and colonialist institutions 4. Annative land titles and sovereign land rights. Let's think about what Australia is celebrating today. 200 years of colonisation, 200 years since they invaded Aboriginal land. And some of these people expect Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people of this country to participate in the birthday party. What bullshit. That would be like asking the Jewish to celebrate an anniversary of the Holocaust. If we start to look at this situation as a people's struggle, don't think of it as oh we gotta do something for the bloody blacks again. Support Aboriginal people in our demands for self-governance, self-determination, self-management, self-sufficiency. Tiger Bales addressing the huge crowd on Invasion Day in 1988, Sydney. 4. A.A. Yugara Yugarapul Tribal Elders Declaration of Sovereignty. 
Elders and members of the community form the Yugara Yugarapul Elders Association to represent themselves as an answer of dissatisfaction to the unrepresentative corporations officially registered. Since the native land title does not recognize real land rights and the existing legislation do not allow any satisfying option for the traditional owners and sovereign originals for exclusive ownership and management of their homelands and territories, the best option left for them is to declare their unceded sovereignty over their lands through their innate, inherent and inalienable right to self-determination and self-governance. The Yugara Yugarapul were the sixth tribal nation in Australia to do such a declaration of sovereignty, which was sent among other recipients to Queen Elizabeth II, joining with the Sovereign Union of First Nations and Peoples Asserting Sovereignty, founded in 1999. In February 2015, the Yugara Yugarapul elders declared unilaterally their sovereignty. Reading as such, Declaration of Yugara Yugarapul Tribal Sovereignty to the Lands of Brisbane, Ipswich. Article 18. Indigenous peoples have the right to participate in decision-making in matters which would affect their rights, through representatives chosen by themselves in accordance with their own procedures, as well as to maintain and develop their own indigenous decision-making institutions. Article 19. States shall consult and cooperate in good faith with the indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free, prior and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them. United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Uwe. My name is Karen Cummins Coghill. I am the nominated scribe for the newly formed Yugara Yugarapul Tribal Elders. Respects from the Yugara Yugarapul Original Sovereign Peoples of Meenjin, Brisbane and Ipswich. On behalf of the Original Sovereigns we are formally advising you and your representatives of who our newly established Elders body the Yugara Yugarapul Tribal Elders and Sovereign Peoples that have come together in agreement to hopefully meet and begin a process of resolution with representatives of the federal, state, local governments and other corporate entities currently assuming governance in the lands of our ancestors. We, the Yugara Yugarapul tribal peoples are descendants to a number of prominent First Nations allodial ancestors that are recorded and confirmed within our communities both orally as well as historically. Representatives of the Yugara Yugarapul tribal elders are blood-tied descendants of the Yugara, Yugarapul peoples, Undambi, Goranpul, Waka Waka, Turbul, Ugembe, Yemen, Yelengi, Yandai nations. As original sovereigns to these lands we the First Peoples are requesting an audience with federal, state and local governments, including corporate stakeholders to address the serious issues of original The original peoples of Australia never ceded their sovereignty. Sovereignty and justice within our ancestral homelands. A number of issues that need to be addressed is the issues of when did the Yugara Yugarapul peoples cede their sovereignty, independence to the Britain or the Australian governments. Is there evidence showing the first peoples sold or leased their ancestral homelands? Is there a treaty agreement memorandum with the first people to claim ownership of our homelands and when was the agreements to apply your British Australian law to the first peoples executed?
The Yugara Ugarapul peoples are not native title applicants, nor are we party to this fallacy. We are appealing to individuals within you organizations who stand for unbiased truth, righteousness and fairness to address the seriousness of these issues, as well as the issue of fraudulence that has left Yugara Ugarapul sovereigns invalidated, undermined, overlooked and without a political voice within their own country. Our aim is to address the truth and hopefully resolve many of these serious judicial matters and propaganda that affects Australia as a whole. Questions of when and did the First Peoples become Australian citizens or British subjects for your laws to dispossess, mass murder and incarcerate the First Peoples continue to be unanswered. When did Australia become independent of Britain to govern these lands and the First Peoples? In relation to the the referendum of 1967, Aboriginal, people were supposedly placed into the Australian Constitution Why is Australia working towards recognising the First Peoples into the Constitution today? In addition to our claims as original sovereigns to these lands there is a Yugara Thompson Connection report that has included a number of our families and apical ancestors. This report was developed and used to support government incentives including the consent to determination claim, through native title, with the Kandamuka peoples in which a number of original sovereigns have been excluded from these agreements. The Pacific Islander Protection Act 1875 clearly states Britain has no jurisdiction over the First Peoples, British Australia has been in breach of this declaration ever since. The Marbo case dismissed the notion of terra nullius in the high courts, and proved our existence within our homelands, why then is the native title agenda dictating the terms and conditions of the First Peoples connection to country? The Yugara Ugarapul tribal peoples are not party to the native title farce that does not acknowledge our birthrights sovereign rights are the true custodians also. The doctrine of discovery developed by the Roman Catholic Empire is not based on biblical principles. This criminal and blasphemous document has been used to commit genocidal crimes against humanity including theft of lands and properties throughout the earth no civilized society should ever include this document to justify covetousness within any people's ancestral homelands. Ongoing ACTs of Parliament enforced slavery and many other inhumane treatments including the fact that our peoples were regarded as flora and fauna and not a people with any rights whatsoever. Added supporting documents to our claims is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples reinforces our rights as original peoples of these lands under international law. I might add to this letter, it was the Yugara people and neighboring tribes that maintained agreements within these lands that kept the environment pristine and pollution free for thousands of centuries, pre-invasion. Land and waterways management were the first people's occupation within these lands, including fire burn-offs, river and creeks maintenance where our songlines did not suffer pollution, but were places of solitude, spirituality and travel. Our waters were drinkable and a place of leisure and resources for our peoples, flora and fauna. Our people and environment did not have diseases, pestilences, homelessness or starvation under their own governance and traditional way of life. 
This letter is a reminder to Australia and its representatives of the survival and resilience of the first peoples of these lands. There were holocausts in these lands. The issue of foreigners taking up residence and claim to the lands of the First People is still a major issue to many of our people, who when released from the concentration camps called missions were given an exemption certificate that meant no contact with family, nor were they given any economical benefit to assist with their lives outside of dependency on government welfare. In comparison to England's migration of convicts to these lands British migrants assumed the role of ownership and granted lands to many of their countrymen at the expense of the First Peoples. The comfort of many foreigners in these lands is due to the fact that many of the First Peoples suffered ACTS of genocide imposed by British Australia. January 26 is celebrated throughout Australia as Australia Day, when this date is only a day of migration of convicts. To our people it is a day of invasion and not a day of independence or a day celebrated by the first people and the foreigner. These issues have never have been resolved. Since invasion, foreign refugees are given rights to lands and communities, integrating into our ancestral lands and prospering. Churches, cults and religions are occupying our lands with no agreements with the Yugara Yugarapul peoples whatsoever. They are in receipt of stolen properties. Refugees of World War I and II have integrated well into Australian society this included Nazi war criminals as well. Refugees of the Vietnam War and a number of other wars in the world have come and made our ancestral homelands their place of refuge and commerce. Many refugees have lived successful lives within these lands excluding the original sovereigns agreeing to any of these arrangements making these actions illegal under international law. The Australian governments have made the foreigner complicit to crimes including being in receipt of stolen properties. In many cases migrants were given the option to murder the first peoples to receive lands. Thousands of innocent people were either murdered, had their families torn apart, children murdered and rounded up into concentration camps called missions where many were subject to abuses and tortures beyond human comprehension. There is no closure to these atrocities, no justice or healing processes in place whatsoever. Even today inter-transgenerational trauma and abuses are very evident with First Nations society, with little or no reparations in place whatsoever. Invasion, dispossession and invalidation of the First People's sovereignty is still an issue that needs to be addressed. We are a separate people with unique issues that continue to be overlooked. The lands are rich in resources and were not intended to only serve foreign agendas. We are an inclusive people that need to be reconnected to our lands and waterways to survive. The federal, state and local governments are guilty of crimes of genocide. Today we face systemic abuses particularly with 30 years since the Royal Commission into deaths in custody and not one arrest the establishment of police liaison officers that play tokenistic roles for the states does not address the issues of deaths in custody as many of the First Peoples are still being murdered at the hands of contracted government servants. 
Today we encounter over-representation of First Peoples in the criminal justice system, juvenile justice system and child safety, including the Northern Territory intervention is systemic racism and abuse. These legislations are imposed by federal, state and territory governments. It is detrimental we assert our sovereign rights as we face genocide imposed by foreign institutions legislating and racially motivated oppressions. We are seeking restitutions, reparations and acknowledgement of our sovereignty within our country once again. Hopefully your systems of government acknowledge this and support our right to self-determination, but most of all it is agreed that we need our lands and waterways returned to the First Peoples for survival and true healing to begin. Our peoples have survived mass murders, illegal incarcerations, exposure to diseases, scientific experiments, kidnapping, torture, sex abuses, neglect, forced control, deprivation of liberties, desecration of sacred places, burial places including the theft of our precious ancestors' skeletal remains, all was acted upon with no consent from the first people whatsoever. Our aim is to convey to your peoples of the truth as our nationality as Yugara peoples and we are appealing to the conscience of individuals within your governments and corporations who believe in justice and adhere to truth, righteousness and remorse for the detrimental actions of the past including today, to remedy the future, not only for the first people but for Australia. Your people are lawfully obligated to assist us with these processes, supporting the original sovereigns of these lands as we gain a better understanding of motioning the process towards independence from systemic foreign control, particularly in relation to lands which still to many of us within the cities of Brisbane and Ipswich have strong connections, spirituality and special significance i.e., the birthing places, Bora grounds, gathering places along the Minjin Botanical Gardens, Nunda, Mountain Kutha, Scrubby Creek, Laidley, Deebing Creek, Perga, Pine Rivers, Nudgee, Spring Hill, Gatton, Bayside, the islands etc. The serious legacy of destruction and dysfunctions are evident within surviving families has never been addressed nor remedied in any form. The issue of land rights, sovereign rights is asserted throughout Australia. Even today, we survive with very little under an illegitimate government continually creating laws and legislations for the first people, original sovereigns designed to further impoverish, destroy and adds to the misfortune of generations of survivors. The governments, religions and corporations have invalidated the true sovereigns of these lands, assuming governance with no agreements with the first peoples of these lands. All are in receipt of stolen properties we hope to address these major breaches of our laws and international laws. Fraudulence is another major concern where Aboriginal people claiming to be sovereigns to our lands, these people have never declared sovereignty but are given precedence over the true sovereigns of these lands, this has been detrimental to our people that even other First Nations peoples are used to authorise deals with corporations when they are not sovereign to these lands and your governments are well aware of the fraud taking place within Yugara Yugarapul sovereign homelands. The issues of stolen generations being compensated little or next to nothing to remedy the crimes committed against them and their families is appalling.
the compensations to the stolen wages is appalling as many of the first peoples were enslaved to colonialists as housekeepers and majorly used in the primary industries to boost Australia's economy but never given due fees. Many paid into welfare funds also that the governments oversaw and monies disappeared from trust accounts established by government agents. There is so much injustice within these lands, we as a people aim to address these misfortunes and hope to come to some agreements to remedy these atrocities with the compensation of the return of homelands. Today the First Peoples are 3% of the total population of Australia, and yet we are the most marginalised, impoverished people here. The Yugara Yugarapul peoples face outright racism, no culturally appropriate gathering places to address our unique issues, no educational centres compared to foreign Australia, no Yugara Yugarapul structures signifying our existence within our homelands. When we gather for any event, we are expected to request consent from foreigners, and astonishingly, we are expected to pay a phenomenal amount of money to foreigners to be buried within our very own ancestral homelands, also. The relationship between original sovereigns and your governments have resulted in very unfair situations. Without going into detail, there have been a number of sovereigns assert their rights within the courts, Musgrave Park and as late our aim is to save the Deeping Creek Mission site to housing developers. The campaign for sovereignty has been ongoing over a number of years and hoped not to be ignored and invalidated any longer. We the First Peoples are a peaceful people by nature we are requesting justice and legal support against crimes of genocide. Should any reading this letter have any contacts, particularly with the international legal supports please feel free to contact us. By the Spirit of Most High and our ancestors we thank you for your attention and hope for resolution to matters highlighted. I have included a copy of my letter to Queen Elizabeth II and her response to my letter acknowledging our sovereignty from a foreign power. Please feel free to contact us as a start to true reconciliation and justice UA. Justice for the people 18 appoint judges and officials for yourselves from each of your tribes in all the towns the Almighty is giving you. They must judge the people fairly. 19 You must never twist justice or show partiality. Never accept a bribe, for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. 20 Let true justice prevail, so you may live and occupy the land that the Creator is giving you. Deuteronomy 16 TLB. Respectfully yours Karen Cummins Coghill Yugara Yugarapul Tribal Elders Scribe The following reply was received from Buckingham Palace, on February 23, 2015. Dear Ms. Cummins Coghill. The Queen has asked me to thank you for your letter of 12 February and to say that Her Majesty has taken note of your comments. Perhaps I might explain, however, that this is not a matter in which the Queen would personally intervene. As a constitutional sovereign, Her Majesty ACTS through her personal representative, the Governor-General, on the advice of her Australian ministers and it is to them that your appeal should be directed. I have, therefore, been instructed to forward your letter to the Governor-General of Australia so that he may be aware of your approach to the Queen and may consider the points you made. 
Yours sincerely, Mrs. Dale Bone, Correspondence Officer. 4. AB Petition. Vote of no confidence in the National Native Title Tribunal. Karen Cummins Caghill deposited a petition on behalf of the Mingen Sovereign Seniors at the United Nations Information Center in Canberra, at the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's office and at the office of Minister Bill Shorten of the Native Disability Insurance Scheme, reading as follow, vote of no confidence in the National Native Title Tribunal. Native title and not land rights. Please support the first people of Australia who are misrepresented by an illicit entity the National Native Title Tribunal. The National Native Title Tribunal was never endorsed by the original sovereigns Aboriginal and Islander peoples to the lands of Australia to represent or claim management of their ancestral homelands. As original sovereigns to these lands. The first peoples of this country are not have never been legitimately Australian citizens nor are we the descendants of Britain for laws to be made for or applied to originals of this country. The first peoples of Australia never ceded, treated, sold or made any agreements with British Australia to claim ownership of their ancestral homelands. Under the Keating government the National Native Title Tribunal Act 1993 was established one year after Mabo Cases 1 and 2 in the High Court, the outcome proved that the lands of Australia were not terra nullius, lands without occupants, but were occupied by the First Peoples that set a precedence the federal government needed to amend for the First People. This legislation was not land rights nor did it give any original peoples rights or justice. Many tribes and communities were not consulted in the development of the National Native Title Tribunal This legislation has proven not operate in the best interests of the First People but benefits corporate Australia, private enterprise, mining interests etc. The NNTT did not take into the account the invasion of lands, the inter-tribal dependency within an area traditional inter-tribal gathering places, the original people's occupations, the resistance defending homelands, the legacy of dispossession and incarcerations of the First Peoples, the destruction to cultural, sacred and significant connections to country and waterways including somlines. Applicants are required to cede their sovereign rights to the Crown and under the confines of federal legislation can only access Crown lands and food sources under legislative parameters. There is no formal training for applicants to understand their rights as an applicant to the native title unlimited or no input to modify destructive pathways. The National Native Title Tribunal only benefits the employees of the NNTT and monies acquired from authorizing deals does not benefit communities but individual family groups who in many of the cases are not the rightful applicants. The dysfunction, stress and trauma the NNTT and their processes have caused throughout the First Peoples communities of Australia has caused both physical and lateral violent episodes that in many cases are ongoing with no resolutions in place, and they are not held accountable. They do not consider or support our customary laws of governance which lies with our senior peoples making the final decisions on matters which may include a number of elders and not one individual as seen to happen. 
do not support people with requests to research their history nor do they resolve or pay participants' consultancy fees when using their knowledge. Connections to country are based on British Australian records and accounts and the First Peoples' testimonies are disregarded and invalidated. Native title has proven to distort records and maps disregarding ongoing requests to remedy these accounts. In many cases throughout Australia authorised deals with mining companies, including coal seam gas has caused tremendous damage to lands and waterways with no restoration practices put in place. Our people did not consent to this very destructive force being the only option to access lands under Australian legislations. The NNTT is using a democratic system of voting that conflicts with customary law practices. Sovereigns to these lands did not consent nor were they consulted in the establishment of the National Native Title Tribunal which has caused tremendous damage to our communities. Ancestral homelands, culture, customary laws, spirituality and way of life. The R recognition campaign in operation at this present time reveals that the first people are not in the constitution. How is the Australia government's justifying applying their laws to the first people? We need to get this right Australia. Sovereign rights is human rights. UA Urbanisation projects proposed by Ipswich City Council and Fraser's Pty at Deebing Creek. 4. AC Planning for Urban Development and Consultation Process. In 2014, promoters proposed a plan for an urban development with over 925 houses at Deebing Creek. The Aboriginal elders and descendants of Deebing Creek Mission expressed opposition and gathered. Mr. Sonny Thompson and Ms. Roberta Graham, two Deebing Creek descendants, raised concerns about the protection of the cemetery and former mission, prompting the contractor to outline its community consultation process, that would last for two months. Ipswich Mayor Paul Pasali declared that the City Council also advocated community consultations, and that this council is so passionate about Indigenous use of land and especially heritage and culture. We will be working with everybody involved before any development. I think people are getting excited too early because I can tell you nothing is going to happen until the state government, Indigenous Culture and Council sign off on it. Mr Thompson noted that Deebing Creek means everything to us. It's something that we lay down of a night time and think about how our people have been treated. It's only a small bit of land, we're just trying to get that back. Ms. Graham commented that if it was destroyed, she would be devastated. Our history would be lost, our identity would be lost, it would destroy our people, our people that was buried here. Local support started to grow. Matt Neck, the great-great-grandson of Thomas Ivans, the last superintendent of Deebing Creek Industrial School from 1896 to its closure in 1915, supported the protection of the historic site. Once this is gone it's gone, he said to the press. For me it's not as significant as some of the indigenous families about the place but it is still pretty important. It's part of my family culture and heritage. This is a part of Ipswich's history. 
times change and not everything that was said and done in those times would be necessarily condoned now but that's what makes history history. That is why it is important that we preserve these sites. It is heritage listed. So I thought something as significant as this would be protected. There's not another one of these. Why does this site have to be developed? You can't tell me this site is the only site available to build houses. In July 2015, Ipswich adopted formally the 2015-2018 Ipswich City Council Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples Accord in partnership with the Ipswich Aboriginal community, outlining a range of projects including cultural recognition, employment, education, business, housing and health. The implementation was managed by the Social Development Branch and questions could be asked to the Council's Indigenous Australian Community Development Officer. The accord was removed from the City of Ipswich website and all reference to who were the Aboriginals involved remains private. They included some of the Aboriginal corporations and groups that concluded an ILUA with Ipswich City Council in 2008, many of whom have kept present in private and public meetings and discussions. In September 2015, local MP Ian Rickus published in the newspaper a letter of support for the protection of the Deebing Creek Reserve, stating, This is about grave sites. This is about cemeteries. We don't go into white cemeteries willy-nilly and start bulldozing them down. This is someone's forebearers. This is someone's family members so let's treat this appropriately. Questioned about his position on development of the Deebing Creek Heritage listed site, the Minister for Heritage Protection, Stephen Miles, did not respond but a spokeswoman of the Department of Environment and Heritage Protection commented, the former Deebing Creek Mission is listed as a place on the Queensland Heritage Register. It is also located within the Ripley Valley Priority Development Area. She noted that developers Australand, a contractor of Fraser's property, had filed an application supported by an archaeologist's report done by an expert hired by the promoters who found nothing, that was approved on August 5 to proceed with some low-impact land analysis. One of the conditions of approval requires that the department is notified of the commencement of works. To date, the department has not received a notification of the commencement of works, she added. Above. Plans to build developments over the cemetery and other burial grounds construction at Deebing Creek equals to the destruction of wildlife habitat and archaeological sites below. Binney's Road construction towards Ripley destroys sensitive areas to comply with the regulations of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. Fraser's property hired an archaeologist who visited the site but saw no trace of cultural uses, and historian Margaret Cook who produced a 16-page historic research on the cemetery reserve. She traced the history of land titles since before the mission was gazetted, and after it was rescinded in 1915 until 2015. According to her research, the lands around Deebing Creek were opened for lease by the government in the 1860s. 
1867, Joseph Gutteridge leased portion 197 of 57 acres, and R. Wilkinson leased portion 204 of 52 acres. In 1869, Thomas Long leased portion 369 of 42 acres. In 1887, the government declared portion 369 a camping and water ground reserve 65. In 1892, the aforementioned reserve was cancelled and became a reserve for the use of the Aboriginal inhabitants of the state. On May 2, 1892, the Aborigines Home for the District of Westmoreland was registered. In 1897, the lease held by Joseph Gutteridge was cancelled and the land added to the Aboriginal Reserve. In 1913, the government decided to relocate the mission at Perga, where it was moved in 1915. In 1917, the Aboriginal Reserve at Deebing Creek was rescinded but the land remained Crown land, it may have been used for grazing. On December 25, 1948, portion 218, an area of 352 acres, was gazetted as Perpetual Lease Selection Er. 7869, under the provisions of the Land ACT's 1910–1953. It was first leased by Nelly Veronica Foote. In 1852, the lease was reduced to 345 acres, as over six acres along the southwest boundary were ceded and gazetted for a road. In 1956, Er 7869 was transferred to Selwyn Stewart Clark Foot of Southport. In 1964, Southern Electric Authority of Queensland constructed an electric transmission line over her 7869 on two easements through the property. In 1966, Selwyn Foote sold her 7869 to Albert John O'Neill and Francis Ambrose Adams as joint tenants. From 1967 to 1973, Les Davidson informed the State Department of Aboriginal and Island Affairs that an area on the northern boundary adjacent to Section 218 of the Er 7869 was the site of an Aboriginal cemetery. In March 1974, Er 7869 was converted to an agricultural farm 7869, under the provisions of the Land Act 1962-1971. In February 1976, an area of 3,600 square metres was resumed from Agricultural Farm 7869 and gazetted as an Aboriginal Cemetery Reserve Lot 228 CC 2905, which was part of the Aboriginal Reserve 65 gazetted in 1892. In 1980, Richard Ambrose Adams took over one-third of the land lease. In 1984, the land was converted to Lot 218 on Plan CC 2906, an area of 139,963 hectares, and purchased as freehold land by A.J. O'Neill, F.A. Adams and R.A. Adams as tenants in common equal shares. 
Finally, in October 2015, Fraser's property bought the lands at Deebing Creek from their previous owners for a housing complex project, a mall, a school, a sporting center, a train station and railroads. In October 2015, a compliance notice was issued to the Perga Elders and Descendants Aboriginal Corporation and its former directors demanding the reinstatement of 128 members who had been wrongfully removed as members. In January 2016, they were still not reinstated and Mr Peter Saunders from an accounting firm was appointed as the corporation's special administrator to resolve the issue. His role was to reinstate the members and strengthen the corporation's rulebook, not to settle disputes. This removal was perceived as a betrayal by some community members and as possibly motivated by decisions to sign agreements with the developers that would not be approved by the entire community. The sovereign original peoples face the fact that after two and a half centuries of genocide, the dispossession and expulsion from their lands continues through legislative and corporate manipulation. I'm not so much angry. But I am very disappointed, that here we are 40 years after the Tent Embassy and we're still talking about treaty and land rights and the outrageous rates of incarceration, declared Aboriginal activist Digger Bales, noting that no real improvement has been made in the last generation. 4. AD Ground Penetrating Radar Survey at Deebing Creek in March 2016, a ground-penetrating radar survey commissioned by the Department of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Partnership DATSIP, was conducted one day at the Deebing Creek Mission Cemetery Reserve. The private third party engaged to do the survey was RPS Australia East Pty Ltd. What looked like an undetermined or undisclosed number of underground disturbances reported as likely to be human burials were discovered, some described as being too long to be individual burials. The survey found that burials extend past the northern boundary, and are restricted to the eastern half. Near the only headstone standing, reading in loving memory of Julia beloved wife of Arthur Ford, died August 17, 1896, aged 30 years, a mass grave was discovered and apparently others. A first report noted that some of the graves were too long to be individual human burials and may represent burials interred using a non-standard burial tradition. Deebing Creek Mission Association President Wade Thompson, said the bodies shown in the radar imaging on the government's gazetted cemetery reserve are not buried in normal individual plots as they would on consecrated grounds of a mission cemetery. The Aboriginal elders notified the press that it was a massacre site they had known of from oral history and the mission's Christian cemetery was on the other side of the lands, closer to the old mission. The report mentions a survey north of Centenary Highway on lot 228 CC 2905 including the cemetery. This site is described as sloping upward away from the creek, about 75 metres east-west and 37 metres north-south, excluding areas where surface objects occurred, like rubbish, a trailer and a recent burial. 
Using a zigzag survey style, the surveyors covered an area of about 2,500 square meters, but no details of the results are provided. The report states that some of the GPR geothermal penetrating radar data not included in the report could contain indications of other human burials that had not been identified. Recommendations included that in case of future works, ground disturbance should be avoided in the eastern half of the cemetery, and suggested that excavations in the western half of the cemetery would less likely disturb human remains, noting also that additional investigation should occur to identify the full extent of the cemetery. It was concluded that a geophysical survey with the digging out of samples would be useful to determine definitely if human burials and how many were present in the cemetery. The 11-page report is inconclusive, vague, imprecise, elusive and obscure, with several repetitions. In an important note in introduction, the report states that the confidential information it contains may be incomplete for a third party. The contractor disclaims all legal responsibility, liability, claim, damage or loss resulting for the use of the data, including past and prospective economic loss, loss of profits or financial opportunity, legal costs, compensation or expenses to mitigate or rectify harm, injury or death. In other words, the survey revealed more than likely burials and human remains in and around the cemetery enclosure but the report was reluctant to release the full details of the results to avoid interfering with the industry. This one-sided biased approach is too often part of legal processes when it comes to protecting Aboriginal heritage allowing a huge amount of desecration of sacred sites to occur. DATSIP Director General Claire O'Connor commented that her department was not aware of the location of a cemetery anywhere else in the area and that there was no documented historical evidence of a mass burial in the area. It is important to note that ground-penetrating radar data contained in the report requires interpretation from a qualified geophysical archaeologist. There is no possible way to determine what is actually below the surface without an archaeological excavation. There is currently no intention of undertaking any archaeological excavations of the reserve, she added. Headstone of Julia Ford, August 1896, Deebing Creek Cemetery Reserve. Deebing Creek Cemetery Reserve, the white cross marks a mass grave. 4. E. Sovereign Traditional Custodians versus Native Title Applicants. A group of Yugara, Yugarapul and Waka Waka descendants of Deebing Creek occupied the former mission site and established a camp near the cemetery, where meetings and events have taken place. The Save Deebing Creek Association was founded to organize strategies for the protection of the site. To save Deebing Creek, was their clearly stated objective and sovereignty was their main concern. The Native Title Act was discredited and condemned as a modern tool of colonialism, using a few selected individuals from corporate bodies as appointees to represent the entire indigenous community, considered as sellouts for signing away the lands. 
the state government sold the property to housing developers, and the native title cultural heritage body endorsed the sale with guarantee of jobs with it. The Yugara sovereign elders declared solemnly online, One of our aims is to sort First Nations business in these lands. We are not native title applicants but hope to research all evidences inclusive of the oral history and written records, as well as acknowledging our people's kinship system with neighboring tribes and historical peoples. We are an inclusive people that, like our old peoples, understand the issues First Peoples contend with under an illegitimate system of government. The state government sold the Deebing Creek site to housing developers despite the cultural heritage protection laws in place over the site. The Yugara Yugarapul peoples and descendants of Deebing Creek Mission are challenging the plans to develop this place into the housing estate particularly when Australia and the world is very uninformed of the issues surrounding the historical significance of this site to the First Peoples. The Mirabuka Sovereign United Nations declared in a written statement, Native title applicants claiming the ancestral lands of other tribal nations is absolutely evil. Cultural heritage bodies sanctioning the destruction of sacred lands too is beyond human reason. The damage caused, for government benefits trinkets and beads type, is not worth the irreversible damage to country and countrymen, women. Families and communities torn apart, government influencing one dominant family group against others imposing native title processes over cultural protocols and laws. Native title processes are causing confusion and are known to invalidate historical families' connections, adoption, kinship systems, caring for country, laws and the sovereign, original blood-tied families are overlooked. Many are experiencing tactics of bullying, lateral violence and other forms of abuses dominating the native title arenas throughout the continent. All for what? Cultureless blacks are far worse than the oppressive government they serve. When we marched the cry was land rights for all not government favors or money. As the saying goes, the love of money is the root of all evil. The Yugara stated on their page, a number of sovereigns is compiling reports and accounts of criminal activities of individuals or corporate entities abusing their powers, entrusted to them by the people. Particularly within the Native Title Tribunal, DATSIP and other government bodies claiming to represent original nations but fail the First People. Disrespect, abuse of powers and negligence cultural inappropriateness, cultural and community damage, lateral violence within communities, sacred site desecration cyber abuse abuse of cultural sensitivity elders and child abuses fraud claiming another's heritage or birthright. These issues may have arisen due to informed consent by native title applicants, cultural heritage bodies and ILUAs. We may have to protest this group out of our ancestral lands, fraudsters that have claimed to be the people of these lands, these people demonstrate no ties to community nor do they care for community, culture or even their own families only there for the money. More specifically, the blame was directed at these Jagara native title sellouts, and one person held, responsible for the violence and abuse in our country is Madonna Thompson. The puppet master with all the money. 
These heritage advisors under the directorship of Madonna Thompson are the peak body authorizing the destruction of cultural heritage on Yugara Yugarapul country. These are the people that need to be accountable they have acted without the mandate and permission or consent of the Yugara Yugarapul nations. They have the cheek to call themselves heritage advisors yet they authorize the absolute destruction of cultural heritage sites, such as Bora grounds, burial grounds and sacred sites and collect the dollars for their own pockets shame job. The elders have agreed to call out Madonna and QNTS for a public debate in the near future. Questions include her connection to this country, what consultation process has she adhered to inclusive of Yugara sovereigns, how she has supported community, what cultural heritage have they protected and the cultural integrity and behaviors of her employees in public, community meetings and social media. She and her crew had a page called Sovereignty Madness Mocking Sovereignty, the Elders, Children, Culture and the Borers. The Aboriginal Tent Embassy commented, Native title is a gross deception. Also native title stipulates in legislation that an Aboriginal nation must have continuing ties to the land. The admin of sovereignty madness is obviously part of native title but obviously does not have any cultural tie to land if a Bora ground is not deemed culturally significant. Typical disrespectful sellout. Madonna Thompson and co. have launched a Facebook page attacking sovereigns for protecting cultural heritage whilst she collects an income pretending to protect cultural heritage. Madonna Thompson, the director of Jagara Duran Pty Ltd., had worked since at least 2006 in native title, cultural heritage and natural resource management. She had helped develop a regional engagement framework that guided government engagement with traditional owner groups for seven years. She was involved in the facilitation of Aboriginal corporations' engagement in natural resource management programs, building corporate and governance models under the Indigenous Land Use Agreements and the Cultural Heritage Management Plans and facilitating business. She was involved in the ILUAs allowing the construction of a road on Bora grounds near Toowoomba, where two camps were set up in protest in 2016, and for the planned development at Deebing Creek. She is a recipient of the Queensland inaugural Indigenous Leaders and one of the only 100 individuals selected by the federal government for the Australian Future Leaders Forum in 2006. Cultural Heritage Management Plans CHMPs, developed under Part 7 of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2003 a confidential documents developed between the land user, or sponsor of the CHMP, and the endorsed Aboriginal party for the area of the project. The Cultural Heritage Unit receives a copy of the CHMP to enable its registration and approval under Part 7 of the ACHA. They are securely stored and copies can be provided to sponsors or endorsed parties upon request but cannot be provided to third parties without the consent of the parties that develop the CHMP. 
On October 17, 2016, the Yuggera and Waka Waka peoples applied for the court to uphold an injunction to stop the destruction of sacred sites in the Toowoomba Range, but the judge ruled against the injunction and the Department of Main Roads was allowed to resume the construction of a bypass. On October 18, the Sunshine Coast Daily published an article saying, Bora grounds destroyed on Waka Waka and neighboring Yuggera country. Native title applicants have overridden Section 32 of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2003 and destroyed Bora grounds to make way for the Toowoomba Second Range crossing by the construction company Nexus. The two Bora grounds near Holmes Road in Charlton were destroyed at 5 a.m. this morning after an injunction was denied by the courts yesterday afternoon. Legal representatives for the state government said that native title applicant Mr. Beatty who opposed the bypass had no legal case because the other applicants Margaret McLeod and Sandra Bowens had authorized Nexus to complete the destruction on the Bora grounds. It was reported by witnesses that Margaret McLeod and Sandra Bowens mentioned at a native title meeting that the Bora grounds were of no significance to Aboriginal people today. The following day, the Yuggera Yugarapul sovereigns gathered on the construction site to signify their strong disapproval. Meetings started happening on a regular basis at the Humanities Building in Ipswich and elsewhere too. In November 2016, DATSIP representatives started attending the meetings of the sovereigns to discuss mediation processes between corporations and the sovereigns, in the form of an ILUA within the frame of the Native Title Act, or a Cultural Heritage Management Plan under the Aboriginal Heritage Act. Gradually, the public discussions transformed to include representatives of city, local and state governments, the Department of Main Roads, landowners, corporations, developers and contractors. 4. AF Declaration of the Yuggera Yugarapul Sovereign Elders about Native Land Title the following declaration of the Yuggera Yugarapul Tribal Elders was published on October 26, 2016. To our international lawyer and parties, Yuggera Yugarapul Tribal Elders based here in Brisbane, Ipswich and surrounding areas. In reference to our meeting in Brisbane I am sending through some information about who we are and the issues we contend with as the original peoples of these lands. We are seeking your expertise and knowledge in matters relating to international legal matters pertaining to our people in the lands of our ancestors against individuals representing Australian British governments and their legitimacy to govern here in our ancestral homelands. I am speaking for a number of Yuggera Yugarapul sovereigns who are standing against intertransgenerational oppressions. We are surviving a racially motivated system continually imposing genocidal legislations invalidating and destroying the very memory of the first peoples of these lands. The evidence of Yuggera people's existence within the lands of their ancestors is very poorly displayed with no representation of our people's history, culture and governance compared to foreign Australia, and their allies, within our lands and modern society. As original sovereigns we are survivors to the holocausts within Australia we have never seen fairness or justice whatsoever. 
in comparison to the Jewish people respectfully who suffered at the hands of Germany and other Allied nations, our people have suffered ever since invasion of 1788. Generations suffered numerous atrocities that continued through to this very day. Evidence is that the first people are 3% of the total population of Australia and our people are over-represented in the criminal justice system, child protection system, many still live in remote communities dependent on culturally inappropriate government services with limited educational and business opportunities, homelessness, low mortality rates, severe unresolved abuse issues and tokenistic roles just name a few of the issues we endure. The truth is that the lands of my ancestors were never ceded, sold nor was there any agreements treaties with any Australian, British or American governments to claim ownership of our lands. Our connections to our ancestral lands are still very strong today, as late the Yugara Yugarapul people are contending with state government and corporations building a bypass through the Toowoomba Range where they intentionally destroyed a Bora ground in Yugara country which was in place for centuries. The Waka Waka and Yugara Yugarapul sovereign elders protested the desecration by notifying corporate entities, establishing a blockade at the site supporting an injunction on parties and was overruled by the so-called justice system. Aboriginal population distribution. Australian population distribution. Aboriginal lands. Native title lands in 2013. Native title lands and claims in 2014. Native title claims in 2015. Another issue is the issue of the Deebing Creek Mission site which was one of the first missions in Australia where many of our people were forced controlled under the Aboriginal Protection Act of the late 1800s. This site is in Yugara Yugarapul country and has special significance to our people, even though this was run as a concentration type camp many of our people survived the ongoing mass murders throughout Australia and turned the mission into farmlands and prominent figures in community arose from here including the families and relationships that were established. Here i.e. births, marriages, deaths prominent cricket players, artists and maintaining of cultural practices were recorded. It was the first peoples of these lands that kept these lands pollution and disease free for many thousands of centuries. Our people lived without diseases, regular burn-offs played a major part in keeping our country from major bushfires. Our creeks, billabongs and rivers, our songlines, we had no pollution and were the waterways were drinkable and flowing. Native species of plants, animals and food sources were plenty in these lands keeping an ecosystem well maintained until British invasion of only a couple of centuries. The devastation has been ongoing ever since. Australia is legally still a colony of Britain that never declared independence. Australia only has a constitution in place to endorse their corporate government that is registered in the United States of America. I have written to the Queen of England Elizabeth of Windsor and clearly stated our position as original sovereigns to our ancestral lands. She responded stating that she is only the Queen of the Constitution, and her response has acknowledged our sovereignty. I will include her response in this letter. 
Our families descend from a number apical ancestors that is supported through a Yugara Thompson connection report to be the descendants of peoples of these lands pre-colonization. This connection report was developed by anthropologists and researchers used to finalize consent to determination native title claim to Kandamuka North Stradbroke Island. Included in discussions amongst our people is the fact that the cultural heritage body that Datsup and the Queensland government endorsed have failed as they have ceded their sovereignty to the Crown and are proven to not be Yugara Yugarapul peoples of these lands they do not represent the sovereigns of these lands. Yugara Yugarapul sovereigns are not native title applicants who ceded their rights as sovereigns to their lands. The issue of the Marbo case did prove terra nullius a fiction in Australia's High Court, but the native title processes developed after the Marbo case too is evidently biased and discriminating against original sovereigns. As original sovereigns we strongly advocate our position as the true custodians with connection to these lands of the southeast Queensland areas. Never did we agree to British occupation and ownership of lands nor were the Yugara People's Party to agreements to forfeiting our sovereign rights in which our ancestral homelands have been claimed by foreigners, desecrated and destroyed by invaders. In fact the Yugara peoples are seeking justice to many criminal ACTs imposed by foreigners. Some issues include ACTs of genocide and war crimes the facts still remain that many corporations, including governments, churches and religions and businesses are complicit to crimes where they are in receipt of stolen properties. I thank you for your attention, my contact details are included should you wish to discuss this further, or meet with Yugara Yugarapul peoples, please note the Australian governments, national, state, local or their assigned corporate bodies do not speak for nor do they represent Yugara Yugarapul original sovereigns, this includes Datsup or native title applicants including cultural heritage bodies established by illegitimate governments. I am writing this on behalf of Yugara Yugarapul and neighboring tribes we are children of the Most High, born from this earth with cultural and spiritual obligations to our people, our Mother Earth, generations to come, and our loving ancestors who suffered against tremendous odds and yet to see justice. May the truth prevail in these very serious matters, to the oppressed the truth is our only weapon of defense.